0: Transcatheter aortic valve replacement, known as TAVR, has advanced significantly over the last decade, becoming the standard of care for patients with aortic stenosis at high or intermediate surgical risk. However, embolic and major bleeding complications correlate strongly with mortality in this patient population and remain an important aspect of post-TAVR antithrombotic pharmacotherapy. Recent observations have proposed that subclinical leaflet thrombosis may occur soon after TAVR and is less frequent in patients receiving oral anticoagulants compared to those who receive dual antiplatelet therapy. Listen in as Dr. Ariana Boudre-Nunn gives us a heart-to-heart about direct oral anticoagulants as an antithrombotic treatment regimen following TAVR.
1: A hundred million. That is the number of persons exceeded that is affected by valvular heart disease. Transcatheter aortic valve replacements, which I will refer to as TAVR for the remainder of this presentation, has changed the landscape of interventional cardiology over the past decade, becoming the standard of care for patients with severe aortic stenosis who are deemed to be at high or intermediate surgical risk. In this patient population, Embolic and major bleeding complications correlate strongly with mortality and thus are an important aspect of post-TAVR antithrombotic therapy. Recent observational studies have suggested that subclinical lethal thrombosis occurs soon after TAVR and is less frequently seen in patients who receive oral anticoagulation as compared to those who receive dual antiplatelet therapy. To date, we still struggle with the challenge of which oral anticoagulant, if any, is appropriate in this patient population and whether there is a role for direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs. Today, as clinicians navigating this large body of clinical clinical literature, it's important that we also assess the quality of the literature so that we're able to contextualize it to the patients that we serve. Over the next hour, it is my hope to help you understand the rationale for antithrombotic therapy following TAVR and to be able to extract the meaningful patterns across the clinical data with antithrombotic therapy following TAVR, particularly in DOAX, so that you may be able to discern in which patient its use is most appropriate. Prior to delving into the literature, let us briefly review what a TAVR is. Recall that there are two types of valves used for replacement, a mechanical valve and a bioprosthetic valve. A TAVR is a bioprosthetic stented valve. This is an innovative and established treatment option for patients with severe aortic stenosis. In severe aortic stenosis, the aortic valve, which sits between the left ventricle in the aorta is narrowed, making it hard for the hump the hard for the heart to pump the blood to the rest of the body. <clears throat> in bioprostet, uh, similar to the procedure of a TAVR, a, or similar, so sorry, similar, similar to the procedure of a STENT, a TAVR is minimally invasive, and patients are t- t- taken to the cath lab, and this process occurs through a transcatheter approach. In the sense of a TAVR the bioprosthetic heart valve is stented or implanted into into the diseased aortic valves. Thus, it can also be referred to as a transcatheter aortic valve implantation. But in patients with severe aortic stenosis, how is TAVR selected as the optimal treatment option? Patients are evaluated using the Society of Thoracic Surgeons predicted risk of mortality score. This score is a validated surgical risk prediction model used in open cardiac surgery based on the database from the STS adult um, cardiac surgery database. In general, patients with a low cardiac risk have a score of less than 4%. Patients with a score of 4% to 8% are considered intermediate risk, and patients with a score of greater than 8% are considered a high risk. Considerations for the STS score are listed below, but I'd like to highlight that it includes procedure type, risk factor, demographics, and previous interventions. This score is further utilized to determine whether a patient is a candidate for a surgical aortic valve replacement, which are referred to as surgical AVR or a TAVR. A surgical AVR is an open heart surgery and compared to a TAVR is more invasive and usually results in longer lengths of hospital stay and recovery time. Prior to TAVR, the surgical aortic valve replacement was commonly used for a severe aortic, for the pre- treatment of severe aortic stenosis. However, there were a substantial number of patients that were deemed unsuitable for this procedure given their high surgical risk. In TAVR, we see that it is minimally invasive and compared to a surgical aortic valve replacement has a shorter length of hospital stay and shorter recovery time. And thus this makes it an optimal treatment for patients with high surgical risk. Now that we've reviewed how the selection of a TAVR is taken place, let's review the timeline of the, ta- of the emergence of the TAVR and the antithrombotic therapy. The first TAVR procedure was conducted in April of 2002, opening new horizons for the treatment of structural valve disease. In 2010, the first randomized controlled trial looking at TAVR in non-surgical patients, which these patients were deemed to be inoperable due, inoperable due to their high surgical risk, was taken place. And this was the Partner B cohort study. Prior to, TAVR, um, prior to the development of TAVR, patients who were deemed inoperable were treated with medical management therapy. And so as you can see here, they compared a TAVR to the standard of care therapy. And at one year, they found in TAVR patients a decreased risk of all-cause mortality and rehospitalization, but they did see an increased risk of stroke and vascular complications. Note that these patients were on DAP therapy for six months and then aspirin indefinitely. This antithrombotic strategy was selected empirically based off of expert consensus due to the similarities to the stent procedure. So this was not based off of evidence of adverse clinical outcomes in this patient population. A year later, the Partner A cohort study was reported. And this looked at a TAVR as compared to a surgical aortic valve replacement in our high-risk patient populations. Again, this is high surgical risk. At one year, they found no difference in mortality but they did see in the TAVR group, there was a decreased risk of bleeding and a decreased risk of new onset atrial fibrillation. However, they did see an increased risk of vascular complications. Similar to the partner B trial, these patients received DAP therapy for six months and then aspirin indefinitely. Following the publications of these studies, the ACC AHA recognized the success of the TAVR by incorporating it into the guidelines as a standard of care therapy in patients with severe aortic stenosis that had high surgical risk. In 2012, the chest guidelines on antithrombotic therapy following TAVR formally recommended DAP therapy for three to six months and then aspirin indefinitely. And this was based off of how the TAVR studies were completed. Again, this was an empiric, um, empiric therapy treatment based off of expert t- consensus and not based off of clinical outcomes. In the background of 2015, a few observational studies reported that subclinical leaflet thrombosis and reduced leaflet motion occurred in patients following a TAVR. They, they also noted that patients who received oral anticoagulation with warfarin had a decreased incidence of subclinical leaflet thrombosis and reduced leaflet motion, but effects on clinical outcomes remained unclear. And so there was no change in the guidance of antithrombotic therapy at this time. Given the TAVR was still a major success, investigators began to contemplate if the promising results that we had seen with the TAVR in our high-risk patients would also be seen in our intermediate and low-risk patients. Furthermore, the PARTNER-2 trial, which was conducted in 2016, looked at a TAVR as compared to a surgical aortic valve replacement in our intermediate-risk patient population. At two years, they found no difference in mortality or stroke, but they did see a decreased risk of bleeding and new onset AFib in our TAVR patient population. A little different from what we had seen in the previous trials, these patients received DAP therapy for one month and then aspirin indefinitely. A few years later, in the PARTNER-3 trial, they looked at a TAVR as compared to the surgical AVR in our low-risk patient group. So this is the first time we're seeing low-risk patients. At one year, they saw a decrease risk in composite death, stroke, or rehospitalization. And similar to the PARTNER-2 trial, these patients received DAP therapy for one month and then aspirin indefinitely. Over the timeline, we can see that TAVR is a great option in our patients with severe aortic stenosis that are high surgical risk and may potentially be an option in our intermediate and low-risk patients. However, in our intermediate and low-risk patients, particularly in those who are younger, the surgical aortic valve patient may still be a preferred option, given that with the life expectancy of younger patients, there's less frequency of repairs needed with the surgical AVR as compared to the TAVR. Also note that in all of these trials, Patients received DAP therapy. So why are we even talking about or considering anticoagulation in this patient population? All foreign bodies, including prosthetic valves, when implanted into the cardiovascular system are thrombogenic. Mechanisms of prosthetic valve thrombosis include surface factors, such as incomplete incomplete endothelialization, leaflet damage or deterioration, hemostatic factors, such as a hypercoagulable state, significant tissue injury, or suboptimal anticoagulation, and hemodynamic factors, such as low cardiac output or hyperviscosity. All of these are relative contributors to subclinical thrombosis. Subclinical so thrombosis is characterized as a thin layer of thrombus that covers the aortic side of one or more leaflets. In patients with subclinical the thrombosis, they're often asymptomatic. And so it is difficult to even know if patients have subclinical, subclinical of thrombosis unless you are chronically imaging these patients. Furthermore, the true incidence of subclinical of thrombosis is difficult to account for given that it's influenced by timing, intensity of screening, um, applied diagnostic criteria, and imaging um, strategies. One of the main concerns with subclinical thrombosis is its potential to contribute to prosthetic valve dysfunction, but the clinical impact and necessity for intervention in this patient population is currently unknown. What we do know is that the highest risk for thromboembolism and prosthetic valve thrombosis occurs in the first three months following TAVR. After about approximately three months, prosthetic valve endothelialization is thought to occur, and the thrombotic risk Reduces decreases in this patient population to that of the general population. And that brings us to our first audience response question. Please join me at pollev.com slash MayoRx or please text rx to 22333. The question is the proposed benefit of an anticoagulant-based antithrombotic strategy following TAVR is primarily driven by A, deep vein thrombosis, B, cardiovascular disease, C, myocardial infarction, or D, subclinical leaflet thrombosis. And as results come in, I agree with the majority of the group that D, subclinical leaflet thrombosis is the correct answer. A, deep vein thrombosis is incorrect because we have not seen in the information that we presented today that deep vein thrombosis was associated with the initiating an anticoagulant strategy in this patient population. B and C are also incorrect due to the same reasons. So what is the current guidance that we have on antithrombotic therapy following TAVR? While there are various guidelines for antithrombotic therapy after a TAVR, today we will be focusing on the ACC AHA guideline. On this slide, you can see the type of therapy on the left and the panel's recommendation on the right. For antiplatelet therapy, the panel recommends a low dose aspirin, which is 75 to 100 milligrams, is reasonable in the absence of any other indication for anticoagulation. They also note that in patients with low bleeding risk, DAP therapy with a low-dose aspirin and clopidogrel 75 milligrams may be reasonable for three to six months following valve implantation. For anticoagulation, the panel recommends that for patients with a low bleeding risk, anticoagulation with a vitamin K antagonist, in the U.S. specifically warfarin, to achieve an INR of 2.5 may be reasonable for at least three months after valve implantation but see here that they do also recommend against rivaroxaban 10 milligrams daily plus a baby aspirin um, in the absence of other or in the absence of um, any other can't sorry in the absence of any other indications for oral anticoagulation but where does this recommendation come from the Galileo trial was a multi-center international randomized controlled open label study evaluating rivaroxaban as compared to DAP therapy in patients who had a TAVR, but did not have a secondary indication for anticoagulation. Patients were stratified to receive rivaroxaban 10 milligrams with aspirin for three months, and then rivaroxaban daily, or DAP therapy for three months, then aspirin daily. The primary outcomes they looked at were efficacy, that being a thromboembolic event or composite death, and the other outcome being safety, life-threatening, disabling, or major bleeding. Patients were similar at baseline. Note here that we do have an elderly patient population, and this correlates with what we spoke about earlier, that patients that receive TAVR are also often high-risk surgical patients, and elderly patients typically fall in this patient population. So we will see this across the board in the trials that we look at today. They had STS scores of around four, so this is in, anywhere in between our intermediate, um, patient, intermediate surgical risk patients. When looking at the primary outcome of composite death or thromboembolic event, overall, we did see an increased risk of those outcomes in the rivaroxaban group as compared to the DAP therapy group, and this was statistically significant. For the, for the secondary outcomes of life-threatening or disabling or major bleeding, we see this parallel that it, it, that there's an increase in the riverox band group as compared to the dap therapy group. This study was subsequently terminated at early at 17 months, given the concern with the primary and secondary outcomes. They further did a sub study of the Galileo trial, looking at the same intervention in the same patient population, but now they wanted to see the presence of subclinical leaflet thrombosis. So this had to be patients who received a CT scan at about 90 days following randomization with the primary outcome being at least one prosthetic valve leaflet with a grade three or higher motion reduction. They defined that as having at least 50% of that leaflet being affected. For patients at baseline, they were very similar. Here we do see a lower uh, surgical risk score as compared to the original Galileo trial here. For the primary outcome of reduced leaflet motion, we see that there was a decreased risk in our rivaroxaban group as compared to our dap therapy group, and this was statistically significant. With the secondary outcomes of at least one leaflet thickening, they did see also that there was a decreased risk in our rivaroxaban group as compared to our dap therapy group. In summary for the Galileo trial, in patients who received a TAVR without a secondary indication for anticoagulation, rivaroxaban had higher rates of composite death or thromboembolic events. In the Galileo 4 d trial, now looking at the leaflet motion in patients who received TAVR without a secondary indication for anticoagulation, ruroxaban may be more effective than DAP therapy at preventing subclinical leaflet motion abnormalities and leaflet thickening. But we still had some curiosity regarding DOAX in this patient population, given that there were several case studies that showed that DOAX were equally effective um, as standard of care therapy post TAVR. For example, Seeger and colleagues conducted a large prospective study evaluating apixaban as compared to vitamin K antagonists in patients who had a TAVR and atrial fibrillation, so a secondary indication for oral anticoagulation. Patients were stratified to receive either apixaban five milligrams twice daily or a vitamin K antagonist, with the primary outcome being clinical outcomes at 30 days and at 12 months, and this being all-cause mortality, thromboembolic events, and bleeding. Looking at the patients at baseline, there are some risk scores that I wanna point out to you here because we will see them um, across the board throughout the other studies, specifically our chads 2 VAS score. Recall that this is a predictor of thromboembolic events that's been validated for our atrial fibrillation group. And in this study, we have patients who had a TAVR and have AFib. So this is a validated score within this study. The score at which patients would need to receive anticoagulation is a chads 2 VAS score of greater than or equal to two. So here we see our patients are at high thromboembolic risk and we need anticoagulation. Next, we see our Hathbud score, at which this is a predictor of bleeding risk, also validated for our atrial fibrillation patient population. And a HAS-BLED score of greater than or equal to three indicates that this patient would maybe need to be followed up more closely as they may be at a higher bleeding risk. And then our STS score in this patient population, as you can see, Although it's in the intermediate risk group, it is close to that 8%. So we're seeing our higher intermediate risk group included in this patient population. In the primary outcome, um, with the early safety endpoint at 30 days, we did see that there was less thromboembolic events in the apixaban group as compared to the vitamin K antagonist group, and this was statistically significant. When looking at life-threatening, disabling, or major bleeding, we also see that in our apixaban group, this occurred less so, being statistically significant, as compared to our vitamin K antagonist group. There were no differences between groups in the outcomes at 12 months. In summary for this Seeger and colleagues trial, we see that in patients with a TAVR that also have atrial fibrillation as a secondary indication for oral anticoagulation, there were lower rates of all-cause mortality disabling or non-disabling stroke, intracerebral bleeding, and major vascular complications as compared to the vitamin K antagonist group. But what other large structured trials do we have regarding DOACs as antithrombotic therapy after TAVR? The Atlantis trial was a large randomized controlled open-label superiority study looking at apixaban as compared to the standard of care in patients who had a TAVR. Patients were split into two groups, either stratum-1, where they had an indication for oral anticoagulation, stratum 2 where they did not have an indication for oral anticoagulation. If a patient had an indication for oral anticoagulation, they were stratified to either receive a vitamin K antagonist or apixaban 5 milligrams twice daily. For patients who did not have an indication for oral anticoagulation, they were stratified to either receive apixaban twice daily or DAPT or SAPT therapy. The primary outcome was time to first occurrence of any event from randomization to one-year follow-up. When looking at the patients they were similar at baseline, now that we have an STS score indicating that we have an intermediate surgical risk group. Roughly around 25% of patients had atrial fibrillation and in the Apixaban group, roughly around 25% also had concomitant antiplatelet therapy. When looking at the primary outcome for the Atlantis trial um, being the time to event from randomization to one year, there was no difference comparing Apixaban to standard of care with these events. When looking at the secondary outcomes, they looked at leaflet thrombosis and reduced leaflet motion as indicated on a CT scan at 90 days. They did see that in the apixaban group, there was lower incidence of both of those and that was statistically significant. They further stratified this outcome looking at them by stratum. Stratum 1, recall that that is our patients that have an indication for oral anticoagulation. You can see the percent incidence on the y-axis with the intervention on the x-axis. And we saw no difference in our patients who required anticoagulation um, with the leaflet thrombosis or reduced leaflet motion. In our stratum two patients that did not have an indication for oral anticoagulation, we did see a reduced incidence in leaflet thrombosis or reduced leaflet motion in our apixaban group as compared to our dabigatran zap therapy group. For, additionally, for the key secondary outcomes, in stratum two, again, these are our patients who do not have a indication for oral anticoagulation, non-cardiovascular mortality was higher in the apixaban group, and this was statistically significant. It is assumed, to be, it is assumed that this is due to bleeding. However, that fact has not been well-established. So in summary for the Atlantis trial, when patients that have a TAVR, apixaban has, is not superior to the standard of care, but we did see a lower rate of valve leaflet thrombosis as compared to antl- plat- antl- platelet therapy, and it may be an alternative to vitamin K antagonists for long-term oral anticoagulation. And that brings us to our second audience response question. Which of the following is true regarding DOACs compared to the standard of care interthrombotic therapy following TAVR? Is it A, DOACs are superior to the standard of care, B, DOACs may lower the incidence of lower valve thrombosis. is it C, DOACs improve mortality outcomes, or is it D, DOACs have shown an increase in cardiovascular mortality? as responses are coming in, I agree with the majority of the group that B, DOEX may lower the incidence of lower valve lethal thrombosis, is correct. For DOEX, B, uh, for the answer A, DOEX um, are superior to the standard of care. We did not see that across the board in the ALANIS trial. For the answer C, DOEX improved mortality outcomes. We did not see that at all with the Atlantis trial as well. And for D, DOACs have shown an increase in cardiovascular mortality. We did not show an increase in mortality in this patient population with apixaban. Next, we have the Ocean TAVI trial. Recall the Atlantis trial had shown that apixaban may be an alternative for long-term oral antiregulation in patients following a TAVR. However, the long-term efficacy and safety of that had not been yet clarified. The Ocean TAVI trial was a prospective observational cohort study um, and it was also multicenter. So this looked at DOAX versus vitamin K antagonists with an INR goal of two to three in patients who had a TAVR with a secondary indication for anticoagulation, that being atrial fibrillation. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality and the secondary outcomes were life-threatening or major bleeding or ischemic events. When looking at the patients at baseline, we see that, again, we have a patient, we have patients that are at a high thromboembolic risk based off of their 2 VAS score, a high bleeding risk based off of their has blood score, and a high surgical risk based off their STS score. It's also important to note that the majority of these patients received concomitant single antiplatelet therapy along with their anticoagulation. For the primary outcome of all-cause mortality, we see that in patients who received DOACs, these this event occurred less as compared to our vitamin K antagonist group, and this was statistically significant. When looking at the DOAX that these patients received, more than half of the patients received Pixaban, followed by Rivaroxaban, Edoxaban, and Dabigatran. For key secondary outcomes, there were no differences between the groups in bleeding or ischemic events. In summary for the OCEAN-TAVI trial, we see that in patients who received a TAVR and have atrial fibrillation as their secondary indication for anticoagulation, DREX may be associated with lower long-term all-cause mortality as compared to vitamin K antagonists. Similarly, the Envisage TAVI AF trial was a international multicenter randomized open label study that looked at edoxaban as compared to vitamin K antagonists with an iron goal of two to three. Similarly, the patient population was patients that received a TAVR and also had atrial fibrillation. Patients were stratified to receive edoxaban 60 milligrams daily as compared to a vitamin K antagonist, but the primary outcome being efficacy with the thromboembolic, thromboembolic event or composite of death and the safety outcome being major bleeding. In the Avisage TAVI-AF trial, patients were similar at baseline, and here we have, a, we have patients that are at a high thromboembolic risk, and they are at an intermediate surgical risk. Note that these patients, more than half of these patients also received concomitant single antiplatelet therapy with their anticoagulation. For the primary outcome of composite death or thromboembolic event, there was no difference between the edoxaban and vitamin K antagonist group. But when looking at safety of major bleeding, we did, we did see an increased risk in our doxaban group, and that was statistically significant as compared to the vitamin K antagonist group. In summary, for the invasive TAVI-AF trial, in patients that have, that have received TAVR and have atrial fibrillation, doxaban may be non-inferior to vitamin K antagonists for the composite outcome of death and thromboembolic events. However, it was associated with a high, higher risk of bleeding events. The newest, travel, the newest trial looking at DOACs in patients post TAVR is the ADAPT TAVR trial. And this was published in April of 2022. This was an international multi-center randomized open-label study that looked at idoxaban as compared to DAPT therapy. This looked at patients who had received, had received a TAVR but did not have a secondary indication for anticoagulation. The primary outcome was incidence of lethal thrombosis at six months, with secondary outcomes being cerebral thromboembolism, and neurocognitive function. Patients were similar at baseline. Of note, this patient population, as compared to the rest, was a low surgical risk patient population. For the primary outcome of incidence of lethal thrombosis, as noted on a CT scan, there was no difference between the adoxaban and the dap therapy group. In the key secondary outcomes, looking at the presence of new lesions on MRI we do see that patients with doxaban had a higher incidence of new lesions as compared to the patients with DAPT therapy. And there was no difference in the incidence of death, myocardial infarction, a stroke, a thromboembolic event, or any bleeding events. In summary from the ADAPT TAVR trial, for patients that have a TAVR without a secondary indication for anticoagulation, adoxaban may numerically reduce the incidence of lethal thrombosis as compared to DAPT, as compared to DAPT but this was not paralleled with the, th- with the new presence of cerebral lesions because we saw an increase in cerebral lesions in our band group as compared to the vitamin K antagonists. And these endpoints really rely on surrogate imaging outcomes. So the, in the trials that we looked today, um, evaluating doax post TAVR, there are limitations. Starting with the study designs, a lot of these were open la- labeled trials. So they are more, um, more affected by Selection bias with the patients. We also see that a lot of the trials were underpowered to detect differences in the efficacy and safety of outcomes. For patient populations, the diversity was either lacking or unreported. And so this may make it difficult for you to apply this to your patients in clinical practice. With regard to interventions, the safety and efficacy profiles differ between the DOACs that we see seen that were in the trials. And we know this based off of seeing them also used in atrial fibrillation and that dosing adjustments were also dependent on the location of clinical practice. For concomitant therapy variations, some patients had single antiplatelet therapy and some patients had dual antiplatelet therapy with the majority of the patients having single antiplatelet therapy concomitantly in the patient populations. Now that we've reviewed the data, how do we we apply this to clinical practice? For patients that have a TAVR, the first thing we wanna ask ourselves is, do they have a secondary indication for anticoagulation? If the answer is yes, we've looked at randomized control trials, we've looked at large observational and database studies, and what we've seen is that DOACs are not inferior to vitamin K antagonists. We did see an increased risk of bleeding in our rivaroxaban and edoxaban groups, but for apixaban, it, it compared equally to our vitamin K antagonists and in some situations even better. And so my recommendation would be that you can consider a DOAC with aspirin or warfarin with aspirin based off of patient and and proceduralist preference. The reason the aspirin is also added to this recommendation is that we did see concomitant single antiplatelet therapy in the studies that we looked at. The next question would be, if our patient does not have a secondary indication for anticoagulation, do they have a high bleeding risk? If the answer is yes, then the recommendation would be to either choose DAPT or SAPT therapy. And the reason we feel comfortable with this recommendation is that we have not proven, based off of the studies that we looked at, that subclinical thrombosis results in adverse clinical outcomes. For patients that do not have a high bleeding risk, while well, after a review of the studies, my recommendation would also be DAP therapy. It is re- reasonable to consider a DOAC with aspirin or warfarin with aspirin based off of proceduralist preference and the surgical procedure. Regardless of which antithrombotic the regimen you are considering, it's important to look at patient-specific factors, including age, comorbidities, bleeding risk, and patient preferences. And that brings us to the final audience response question. FN is a 67-year-old male, status post TAVR, with a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, atrial fibrillation, and a GI bleed three years ago. He is to be initiated on antithrombotic therapy and would prefer not to have a regimen that requires therapeutic drug monitoring. Which of the following is the appropriate antithrombotic regimen for this patient? Is it A, aspirin 80 milligrams with clopidogrel 75 milligrams daily? Is answer B, rivaroxaban 10 milligrams daily with aspirin 81 milligrams daily? Is the answer C, apixaban five milligrams twice daily? with aspirin 81 milligrams daily, or is it D, warfarin daily with a baby aspirin daily? And as responses come in, I would agree with the majority of the group that for this patient, a pixivan five milligrams twice daily with a baby aspirin daily would be an appropriate option. The reason why A, aspirin daily with clopidogrel daily would be an incorrect answer is that this patient had a chest vest score of three. And recall that in our patients that have a chest to chat score of greater than or equal to two, they require anticoagulation. So DAP therapy would not be a patient, or appropriate in this patient. B, rivaroxaban 10 milligrams daily with aspirin 81 milligrams daily would be inappropriate um, for this patient, given that we don't have any recommendations on rivaroxaban dosing at this dosing range in our patients with atrial fibrillation. C, uh, again, the correct answer given our, the trials that we've reviewed, the dosing that was used in the Atlantis trial and all those that looked at Apixaban, um, this would be the appropriate option. D, warfarin would be incorrect with aspirin given that the patient had requested specifically that they would not like to have therapeutic drug monitoring. So this kind of brings in the role of patient preference um, along with their clinical presentation. In summary, antithrombotic therapy reduces the risk of thromboembolic complications after TAVR. Further research is needed to identify the clinical significance of subclinical leaf thrombosis in this patient population. For patients that do have an indication for anticoagulation following TAVR, DOACs are a reasonable alternative. For patients without a secondary indication for anticoagulation, DOACs may still be considered on a case by case basis following TAVR.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.